Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming, I am he, and he will deceive many. When you hear of wars, rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and father and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything in advance. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. 
But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Let me pray for Mike before he comes to speak to us. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that when we read it, we learn new things each time. Thank you that there's mysteries in it, there's truth, there's power, and there's life right through it. And pray for Mike, pray that you would use him in his words to speak to us today, to refresh us, to encourage us, to equip us, and to challenge us in our walks with you. Amen. Amen. Please do keep your Bibles open at that chapter. We're in a series called Mark, the story that changes everything. And today we're doing this whole chapter, which actually is the longest block of Jesus' teaching recorded in Mark's gospel. And the heading, as you can see in our church Bible, is, and the translators have added this to to our text, says this, the destruction of the temple and signs of the end times. Ooh. Signs of the end times. Reference to end times is enough to make some of us quiver with excitement. Now, some years ago, a fellow pastor, a colleague of mine, and, and I decided to run a public Bible study in central Manchester. It was a weekday lunchtime, and we, we held it in a basement of a shop on Deansgate, the main shopping street, and we advertised it for anyone to come. And for some reason, we decided to study the book of Revelation. And I don't remember why we thought that was a good idea. Looking back, I would choose another book next time, probably Mark. But anyway, Revelation uh, we did, and it drew some incredible characters off the streets of Manchester. They were obsessed with Revelation because they felt it was like a code that if they could crack, they would understand when the end of the world might be. Now, one dear man was totally absorbed in this quest. He sent me one of the longest emails I have ever seen. And one week, he missed the study, which was unusual, and he wrote to me afterwards, I didn't come today because I was asleep. I was up all night working on my own book on Revelation with the second coming happening between 2020 and 2060. So we've got about a 40-year window there. He says, all the other expositors are right about Revelation. They just got the vials wrong. Now, it is intriguing to speculate about the end of the world, isn't it? But the problem is, the Bible doesn't give us a timeline. And that is intentional. In fact, the Bible answers the question of when the world will end uh, here in in this chapter. Do you want to see where where it is? Of course you do. Look at verse 32. Jesus himself says, but about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. Jesus himself, but only the Father. No one knows. Even Jesus in his earthly 
Nature did not know when the world will end. It's a secret known only to God the Father. But questions about the end times, which are technically referred to as eschatology, are important. Let me put this positively. The essential teaching of the New Testament is this. Jesus Christ will return visibly and personally at the end of time and he will judge and renew the whole world. And for those who accept the trustworthiness of the Bible, we all agree on that. Okay? So that's the main thing. But there is almost no consensus on the details of Jesus' return and the end times. Almost no consensus. Sincere, godly, scholarly Christians disagree on almost all the details. Why? Because most of the biblical material on it is of a type called apocalyptic. It's a certain type of writing, and it's very difficult to interpret. So what does this mean? Well, firstly, I think it means we must hold our convictions on this matter with humility and a certain degree of tentativeness. You don't really believe that you are, you are wiser than most of the rest of the church, do you? I know I don't. So this calls for humility, however strongly we, we may hold our convictions. And secondly, we should study to understand what the Bible says about the end times because it has a massive impact on your life, how you understand it, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, whether you're basically optimistic about life in this world or basically pessimistic and so on. Now, everything that I've just said for the last two minutes was basically orientation to this passage that Rupert's just read. Mark 13 does speak about the end times. It has some bearing on it. But it is difficult to interpret. It is prophecy by the, from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But it is not apocalyptic literature like we have in the book of Revelation or the Apocalypse. And as my wife said in our life group on Thursday night, I'm glad I don't have to preach on this on Sunday. <laughs> now, let me just talk about the Duke of Edinburgh Award for a moment. Segway. The Duke of Edinburgh Award for our American visitors is a popular activity among high school students. To get the award from the Duke, the participants must plan and organize an expedition in a remote rural area. They have to walk a certain number of miles. They have to sleep in a tent for at least one night. They have to cook a proper meal outside and they have to arrive at an agreed destination. Crucially, they are not allowed to use phones or technology or go to shops or use motorized transport. They have to walk. They have to plan their expedition using an old-fashioned map and a compass to guide their steps. Now, because this text that we have before us today is a difficult country, difficult terrain, we will spend a couple of minutes just looking at the map before we start our expedition. It will help us not to get lost in the hills and end up at the wrong place. So here is the map. Matthew, can you bring that up on the screen? And I've done this to actually to um, a copy from the church Bible. Is it going to come up? I'll tell you what, I'm in big trouble if this doesn't happen. I have to tell you a joke about eschatology. Some students were studying eschatology and someone said, if you don't know what eschatology is, don't worry, it's not the end of the world. In a moment, this thing's going to come up. Now, what I'm going to say 
is that Jesus is talking about two separate events. Well done, Matthew. He's sweating, but he's still intact. Uh, Jesus is talking about two separate events, and that's the key to understanding this difficult passage. I'm going to use this thing. If I shine it on that box over there, it will explode. You know that. So here we have uh, Jesus leaving the temple, and his disciples say, look, what these magnificent buildings here. And Jesus talks to them and says, you see these buildings? They're going to be absolutely destroyed. Not one stone left on another. So that's the setting of this. He's talking about the physical temple in Jerusalem, which was there at this time. And then in this section, which I've called A1, you see that? All of this here is all about the destruction of the temple, which happened in the year 70, AD 70. The Romans came and destroyed the temple. But at this point, Jesus starts talking about something bigger. Because you can see there in that section... Verse 24, he changes the reference and says, But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man, that's him, coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of of the heavens. Now, the first part of the chapter, Jesus is talking about something quite local. He says, Those who are living in Judea have got to get out of there. Don't go into your house and try and get your clothes. Run to the hills. He speaks about something very specific and local. But in these verses here, B1, he talks about something cosmic. See? There's a change of reference. And then we have two parables. This one here, Uh, where he says, learn the lesson from the fig tree, is a story, a parable, about what's happening in Jerusalem here. But then at the end, he comes back to the end of time and gives a final parable here about how to be ready for when he returns. Now, I think this will help us to to navigate our way through the difficult uh, terrain. Thank you, Matthew. Do you want to click on to the next one? Now, why does he do this? Remember the context. We've been in the Jerusalem temple since chapter 11. We've seen Jesus commandeer a a young colt that's never been ridden before and ride like a conquering king into the the capital city, Jerusalem. He doesn't just go into Jerusalem. he He heads straight for the temple. He inspects it. He goes out, spends the night, and comes back. And in the morning, he judges it. And the story of him judging and clearing the temple is framed by a strange story of him cursing a fig tree. And it makes the connection that the fig tree, which is fruitless, is just like the temple. The temple, which should have borne fruit for God and been a house of prayer for all nations, was barren and empty religion. And so it is there condemned, like a condemned building, and therefore it will fall. The next couple of chapters were all about interactions with the leadership. It's all based around the temple, and they're walking in the temple courts. Remember the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, they all come one after another pitching their questions at Jesus. We're still in the temple. Here in chapter 13, Jesus leaves the temple for the final time. He will never go back. And as they're on their way out, the disciples ask, don't you think this place is amazing? No wonder. Herod's temple was the largest, most impressive building for hundreds of miles around. 
Some said it was the most beautiful building in the world. The Roman historian Tacitus described it as immensely opulent. No expense had been spared. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote that each stone in the temple wall was about 37 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide. Massive stones. Josephus said it was like a beautiful mountain. You could see it from the distance. The front was gold-plated so that it shone, and when the sun shone on it, it reflected like a snow-capped hill. The temple rebuilding program had taken 80 years, and it was more than just a temple. It was a symbol of the whole Jewish hope and identity. It's like Buckingham Palace, the Houses of Parliament, and St. Paul's Cathedral all rolled into one. And Jesus says, it is going to be smashed. Look at verse 2. Jesus is predicting a catastrophe, a very violent event. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And we know that this prophecy came true in 70 AD under the leader Titus. The Roman army came, laid siege to Jerusalem, broke the people and destroyed the temple and the city. Now, for Jesus' disciples, this is absolutely shocking. So the closest disciples, James and John, Peter and Andrew, they come to him privately and they, no doubt rattled, ask him two questions. When will it happen? And what will be the sign? How will we know? This is in verse 4. And here's the key to the chapter. Okay, you ready? They assume that the destruction of the temple would be the end of the world. They think that the destruction of the temple is going to be the end of the world. They think those two events, of course, must go together. That's the Jewish thinking. And so Jesus answers their question. But he answers it on two levels. Two horizons. He deals with two separate events. Firstly, the destruction of the temple which would happen 35, 40 years later. And secondly, wrapped in that, he talks about the end of the world. Now, what is the real world cash value of all this? What does it mean for you and me tomorrow morning? Two very important, very practical lessons we can draw from this text. Firstly, how to live when your world is falling apart. How to live when your world is falling apart. And secondly, how to live when Jesus could come back today. Matthew, would you mind flipping on to the next slide? Firstly, how to live when your world is falling apart. Most Jewish people saw the temple as the center of their universe. Everything was built around it. It was what gave them coherence, cultural stability, gave them a deep sense of security. Because that was where God lived in a special way. Even though God filled the heavens and the earth in the Hebrew mindset, they still regarded the temple as his special dwelling. Here's Psalm 132. The Lord has chosen Zion. That's the hill the temple was on. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. So it was their security. It gave them an identity. Even if all else failed, they still had the temple, the visible sign that God was with them. But now Jesus himself predicts its destruction. 
but he does not tell them the date. Did you notice that? He gives them the information that they need, but not the information that they want. Rather than just tell them the sign, he tells them several things that are not signs. Verses 5 to 6, a warning about deceivers who feed false hopes. Watch out that no one deceives you, he says in verse 5. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. You see, these guys trick people with daring declarations and dramatic gestures. They make big claims about their own spiritual leadership. They're the Messiah. Come back. And Jesus says, watch out. And the word means be discerning. Be discerning. Be wise. Learn to assess things spiritually. Don't just believe what the latest small c charismatic leader says. Don't be fooled by them. Weigh what they say. Verses 7 and 8, he warns them about wars, earthquakes that feed fear. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, famines. These are just the beginning of birth pains. You see what he's saying there? Cataclysmic events can shake us to the core. They can shake our confidence. We don't know what God is doing. What about international commotions? Over one million people marching on London yesterday. Total uncertainty and chaos in our political process. Everybody's predicting different things. Natural disasters around the world. Cyclone last week destroyed many lives. Jesus says these things should not cause you excessive alarm, Christian. When the world is collapsing around us, Christians can get impatient. Lord, where are you? We cry out for deliverance from distress. But Jesus says such things must happen, but the end is still to come. In other words, prepare yourself for the long haul. Don't panic. Verses 9 to 13, he moves to things that are specifically directed at Christians. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. There's political and religious opposition. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, don't worry beforehand about what you will say. Just say whatever's given you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. See, some things are put here to target Christians because they're Christians. And this did happen. There was a devastating fire in the city of Rome in the 60s. And the emperor Nero tried to pin the blame for it on the Christians in the community. Historian Tacitus described Christians as a class hated by everyone for their abominations. What was their abomination? It was their devotion to Jesus Christ. It was so intense that family members even turned on other family members, sometimes just to save their skin, other times because they hated the gospel. Everything that Jesus predicted here actually happened. And in the book of Acts, if you've ever read it, you see that the disciples were prepared. They did stand before governors. They did stand even before kings. And they were given words to speak by the Holy Spirit. They realized that they were suffering those things just like their Lord. 
just as he prophesied. And they were suffering just like Jesus. You see, Jesus himself endured all of this first, didn't he? We're going to read that in Mark in the next few weeks. So the disciples can see through his suffering, the great salvation and redemption comes to the world. So through our suffering, the kingdom of God silently advances as we proclaim the gospel in the midst of our trials and perhaps persecutions. Let me just speak a word to those who are suffering and are crying out and wondering, "What, Lord, why don't you end it? You know, one of the reasons might be that the way you deal with your suffering in front of other people by patient faith, trust in the Lord, is a better witness to them than if you were delivered right now. If you were just delivered right now, people will say, oh, of course she believes in God. Yeah, she, she has a problem and God rescues her. But the fact that you hold on and trust in the midst of your suffering is a great testimony and a great witness. Don't despise it. You see, the central issue here is not how the disciples come to figure out the timing of the end, but what to do when they're persecuted. Will they wilt and cave in under pressure? Will they be consumed by worry and anxiety? Or will they stand up graciously as their Lord did? What will Daniel do today in North India? Prayed about him already. Let's keep him in our prayers. This is happening to him right now. A woman went to one of his prayer meetings last year, just visited, and when she got home, her family tried to set her on fire. Her own family. That's North India. A place that's getting more and more intolerant as the days go by. Jesus is saying here, get ready. Verses 14 to 20 warn specifically about the war that will come in Judea. The first Jewish war was in the year 66 to 70. What about this weird phrase in verse 14? Didn't you wonder? Rupert even sent me a special text about it this week. Looking forward to hearing about verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Don't you love that phrase? Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. What is this abomination that causes desolation? This is a weird phrase. It's used three times. In the book of Daniel, that book is apocalyptic, or half of it is, and it refers to what is detestable and rejected by God, okay, abominable. Something that will cause horror and destruction among people. It causes desolation. What was it? We don't know. There's no point speculating. But the original readers did didn't they? Because he says, Mark says, let the reader understand. It's a signal to them. This is inside knowledge. We don't have it anymore. Now, this seems to be a horrifying event in the temple itself. Something would happen. Some practice would happen in the temple, in the holy place, or some idol worship would be set up there by the Romans. Something would happen, but they would know what it was, And that was the signal to get out of town. Notice the urgency in verses 14 to 16. Don't hang about. Get out. Don't try and pack your bag. Run to the hills. The flight would be so rapid that those pregnant and nursing would struggle to keep up. 
Run for your lives. It will be a dreadful phase of history. Jesus says to pray that it won't take place in the winter. Such would be the distress. And we know that this did happen in AD 70. Titus laid siege to Jerusalem in April of that year and waited it out. And those trapped inside endured horrific privations. They were starving and they resorted to cannibalism. Some children died and their families ate them. Such was the suffering in that place. Violence broke out within the city. People were tearing each other apart before the Romans even came in. And then they did break through. And they looted the temple, burned it, and razed it to the ground. It was the end. Many Jews were crucified. Hundreds of them crucified, lined in rows. Now, there was a theological point to that tragic event in history. The church of Jesus Christ does not need to offer sacrifices because Jesus is our sacrifice once for all. Jesus has fulfilled all the law of Moses, all the sacrificial law, and we don't need priests. Jesus is our only priest. I'm not a priest. No Protestant pastor is a priest. We don't need them. We have one priest, the Son of God. In fact, the church of Jesus Christ is not tied to a temple or any kind of building because Jesus is our temple. He's where we go to meet God. He's God dwelling among us. That temple, that physical building was obsolete. We don't have sacred spaces. Churches aren't sacred spaces. This school isn't a sacred space. The sacred space is the people because Jesus is our temple and we're his body. So we become the new temple when the Holy Spirit comes. The Apostle Paul could write these words a few years later to the Corinthian church. Listen to this. It's mind-blowing. Don't you know, you church, that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. 1 Corinthians. You see, we don't need to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, to meet God, because God has come to dwell in our hearts through faith. I could feel it while you were singing earlier, couldn't you? So we take the greatest care to love the local church. We take the greatest care not to destroy or harm the local church, because this is God's temple. Therefore, we must all Brothers and sisters here at Grace Church, we must all strive together every day for the unity of God's people because it's the temple. We must strive together for the purity of God's people because the temple's a holy place. The local church community is the temple. Okay, how should you live when your world is falling apart? Five quick things. Firstly, take care to be wise so you will not be deceived by false teachers. You know, the world is still full of them. Strive to grow in wisdom and spiritual discernment so that you can test teaching, even from those who say they teach the Bible. Secondly, be ready for the long haul. The long haul. You know, these disciples who hear Jesus giving this prediction, they had to wait nearly 40 years till it actually happened. That's more than a generation. Waiting. Patiently being ready for the long haul. 
John Milton once wrote, they also serve who only stand and wait. Thirdly, pray. How could you not? Hard times will come to the church of Jesus Christ in every generation. And we must learn how to pray fervently. Fourth, don't worry. Don't be alarmed, Jesus says here. God is still in control. Crises will come and go. Even wars, earthquakes, famines, things that you can't understand, things in your life you can't interpret. You don't see why it's going like this. It seems senseless. God is still in control. And words will be given to you when you're under pressure by the Holy Spirit. Fifth, practice patience. Practice patience. Amen, little brother. He's given us the amen. You know, it's sometimes said, patience is a virtue seldom found in women and never found in men. Tom Wright, professor of New Testament at St. Andrews, writes this. Many Christians today face persecution every bit as severe as that the early church suffered. And those Christians who don't face persecution often face the opposite temptation. That's us. The temptation to stagnate, to become cynical, to suppose that nothing much is happening, that the kingdom of God is just a pious dream. Jesus told us that we would need patience to hold on and see the thing through. We should not be surprised if we are called through whatever circumstance, to practice that virtue. Practice patience. Take care to be wise, be ready for the long haul, pray, don't worry, and practice patience. That was the first prophecy about the temple. And it is the main emphasis in this chapter. But there is a second horizon, and I'm going to deal with this much more briefly. Second horizon is how to live when Jesus could come back today. Look with me at verse 24. As I suggested earlier, I think... There's a transition here. Jesus now not talking about that local uh, episode in the first century, but talking about something future that is global and cosmic. In those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. This is a collection of quotes from the Old Testament from Isaiah and Joel, two of the prophets who talk about the future, talk about the end times, talk about the Lord's return, talk about the new creation. In other words, there's a cosmic event coming. Even the sun, moon, and stars will be shaken, confused. Why? Verse 26, because the Son of Man is returning. You know, Jesus came once in humility, born in a stable, as we celebrate at Christmas in his incarnation, born to humble peasant Virgin Mary, lived an ordinary life as a local carpenter or handyman, spent three years in ministry traipsing around mostly obscure places with a ragtag bunch of followers, mixed ability, was crucified on a Roman gibbet and rose again on the third day from where he ascended to the right hand of God. Jesus' first coming was very humble, but his second one will not be. Verse 26 says, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. 
Notice, not coming through the clouds, like an aeroplane, but coming in clouds. And clouds are always used in the Bible when God is physically manifesting his presence in his world. The cloud that came down on the top of Mount Sinai. The cloud that the Israelites followed through the wilderness on their wilderness wanderings. The cloud that came down on the Mount of Transfiguration, just a few chapters forward when the voice of God spoke. Cloud covers the presence of God and shows us that he is really here. The Son of Man, that's Jesus, will come in clouds and with great power and glory. And what will he do? Verse 27, he'll gather all his children home. He sends his angels, his messengers, and gathers all his people, his chosen elect, from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, to the, to the ends of the heavens, from everywhere. He gathers them all in. Millions and millions of people who've trusted in Jesus Christ will be drawn together for that final day. This is a prediction of the second coming. Jesus is risen, now reigning, and will return. But we don't know when. And we're not supposed to. My friend was quite mistaken to stay up all night trying to figure out when Jesus would come back. We're not supposed to know that. All that we have to do is decide how we are to live in the light of it. It's not when, but how am I going to live? And that is the point of the parable, verse 34. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. That's your job, watchman. Your job, you only have one job, is to keep watch. Someone's role, one servant's role would be this in a great house in the ancient world. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back. Could be any time. And if he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. So Jesus says, What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch, keep alert, get ready. He might come back today. What do we learn about Jesus' return here? Firstly, he will return personally, everyone will see. Secondly, he will return victoriously. He comes in power, in clouds, in glory. Thirdly, he will return redemptively. The shaking of the cosmos and the sun, moon and stars is not just to destroy it, but to renew it and bring in a new creation, the home of righteousness. And fourthly, he will return justly. He will gather his people and he will judge the world. All the bullies, all the dictators... All the abusers, all the exploiters, the sex traffickers, all the people who've ripped people off, those in power who abuse their power, all those who look like they got away with it won't. Jesus Christ will judge. His timing and his justice are perfect. In fact, his judgment is a moral necessity. If God was not the judge, then he would not be loving we need a God who judges. We need a God who says, vengeance is mine. I will repay so that we can be nonviolent. We don't need to repay. He's got it covered. So in light of his return, how should we live? Just imagine, as I close, imagine that we knew Jesus Christ was coming back 
on the 31st of December 2019. Okay, he's not. But just imagine that we knew, you know, we had a special memo just for Grace Church. Got it here in the back of my Bible. And it, it, end of December, Jesus is actually coming back, coming in the clouds. Okay? You got till the end of December. Just think about it. How would, how would your life change? How would your life change? Like the watchman, you would take care to be ready, wouldn't you? You would not spend the next nine months or so compromising with the culture around. I think you would live a life that was conspicuously righteous. You would take care to love your neighbor as yourself and love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. You would be careful, I think, to live a holy life. Because he's coming back in December and I'll look, he'll, I'll look him in the eyes. I think you would be very prayerful. You would be praying for those lost people. Those lost men and women and children who you know. Family, neighbors, friends, colleagues, whoever it is. Those who are outside of God's kingdom and therefore under his judgment. You would be praying like crazy for them. Lord, please bring them in. We've only got to the end of December. Please would you have mercy on them. Please change their hearts and give me an opportunity to speak of you. I think you would be praying and you'd be ready with an answer. And let me ask you, just in the quiet of your own heart, is there anything right now that you need to repent of in your life because you know Jesus is coming back? Don't put it off. Today's the day. In a few moments, we're going to take a cup of juice and a little bit of bread, symbols of Jesus' body and blood shed and broken on our behalf. Don't come to the table with dirty hands. Repent of that thing now. Put it behind you. Resolve to fix it. Sort it out. Live a life uncluttered by those distractions and things that stop you from living wholeheartedly for Jesus Christ. He will return. Now, I didn't say, imagine if Jesus came back tomorrow, because that would, I think, lead us to sort of panic behavior. But if we had nine months, I think we would sort things out. And I want to encourage us to do that. He will return, and we will see him. And then we will be like him, because we will see him face to face. Let's pray.